Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 596 with Chef Sharon Van Meter. I think a leader is to form the best troops possible. I don't think it has anything to do with you personally being the best at something, but really surrounding yourself with the best of the best. And it can never be about one person. It always has to be about the entire organization. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash Stoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Sharon Van Meter. Sharon, are you feeling unstoppable today? I have always felt unstoppable. And you know, I believe that statement because looking at your track record, it's incredible. I cannot wait to dive into it. Uh, a graduate of Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, France, world master chef Sharon Van Meter brings more than 40 years of award-winning acclaim culinary experience to Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, chef Van Meter has served the culinary world as executive chef of the Ritz-Carlton uh, International, professor of American cuisine at Paris Le Cordon Bleu, and executive chef in the renowned kitchens of Neiman Marcus in Dallas, Texas. Currently, Sharon is the president of SVM Productions, LLC, a leader in television, radio, and culinary productions. In Dallas, she runs 3015 at Trinity Groves and is the, the partner in Tacos e Vino as well as other ventures. You have so much going on in your background and what you've got going on today. I know there's going to be value in today's conversation, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us oh you know i i think i grew up just remembering the never 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 how many nevers are there give up i mean i think that should be everybody's mantra because i think in the world of craziness we all give up too easily yeah you know i feel like we don't see results fast enough so we feel like we're not getting anywhere but when you we were just talking about this when you slow down and you look to the past so see what you accomplished you we come a long way we don't realize it until we slow down and look at the past to see how far we've come but it's only when you never give up and you just keep looking forward and plugging away and working hard i love it do you want to add anything else to that no i think that's a great quote yeah it's awesome so you got started 
early, at the age of 16, uh, take us to that point when you knew you were going to commit your life to food and beverage. I have never figured out that point in my life. (laughs) People say, oh, why did you decide to do this? And I always respond, I didn't know any better. And actually, I have an interesting start. I grew up in a pretty affluent family. My grandfather um, was a businessman. And, um, you know, in our small town, you would have thought their last names were Rockefellers, but they weren't. You know, I came from an Italian-German-Irish background. But you think... It's a good combination. Oh, don't ever get me mad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You would think that I'm a full-blooded Italian because I kind of act that way. But... um, I was an Olympic gymnast, and I chose to have private tutoring back in, and we're talking about, I'll probably date myself here, but why not? I mean, we should be proud of our age nowadays. Um, I trained for the Olympics, um, the Munich Olympics. Wow. And was part of that. Well, part of the training back then, you know, the, the United States were still amateurs. We hadn't quite figured out that the rest of the world were professionals, and, uh, so I had a private tutor, and because of that gymnastics background, the private tutor also let me graduate from high school pretty early. I was 16, and and uh, nobody knew what to do with me, so I went to New York and worked for a friend of my mom's who was a dress designer, Yves Saint Laurent. And I ended up um, being pretty poor in New York, and this was the mid-'70s, and I would get a big deli sandwich back then, you know, Katz's and, and all the guys still ruled, and I would cut it in seven pieces. But <laughs> I grew up with this German um, cook, and Anna would put things in the oven, and I think pull them out three days later, and it was magical to me. I was always intrigued by cooking, and I watched her a lot. So I learned to cook by watching her. And I went to uh, France because... Yves Saint Laurent said to me at 16, you're a much better cook than you'll ever be a dress buyer. Now, you know, I think I was sharpening pencils. I don't think I was buying dresses. (laughs) But it it was words of wisdom that every 16-year-old wants to hear how good they are at something. And I said to my parents, I'm going to Europe. And they thought that was wonderful. Uh, and I said, I, and they, they wanted to know what I was going to do over there. I said, well, I'm going to culinary school. Back then, you had to be sponsored into culinary school. So he, as a Frenchman, sponsored me into Le Cordon Bleu, and um, by chance, I got over there, and I didn't realize that there weren't going to be any women in my class. Nobody gave you a heads up or anything? You just went into that? You know, I'm thinking it was the 70s. I wasn't doing drugs, but I'm just blown away nowadays how much I didn't know, and yet I was fearless and just said, I'm going for this. And I think if I would have known better, I probably would have been influenced to the point where I wouldn't have done what I did. I mean, yeah, none of it makes sense now, but I did it, and and I'm surprised I survived it, but I did. I think there's some value to that, though. I mean, when we know too much, when we overthink it, we never just go, right? And we overanalyze paralysis by analysis, right? But if you just go and you put yourself into it, you will survive. You will adapt. You will be forced to 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 figure it out. Uh, but I think half the challenge is just diving in. Well, you know, fearless isn't isn't a good thing for everyone. Yeah. But it's always worked for me. You know, my I'm married to a complete opposite. 
you know, he analyzes everything. You know, by the time he finishes analyzing, I've already got the project done. It might not be the way he wants it, but, you know, it makes for an interesting marriage. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys bounce each other well. So what was it like being the only, how many people were at the school total? 573. And you were five, you were one out Fran- of 573. Yeah, you know, back then France was a state-ran school, and they still are, but... um back then you would be sponsored and they give an an aptitude test in the secondary level kind of like our SATs but that that divided you into um, marks for college if you rated high enough you were allowed to go to college you could go even if you didn't rate high enough but you'd have to pay but that test also divided into some apprenticeship programs and um so you had a lot of 14 and 15 year old boys at Le Cordon Bleu that really didn't want to be cooks but that's where they rated high in their aptitude test. So there were 572 14 and 15 year old boys oh and gosh. me. Oh man. And you yeah. were 16 at the time. I was, I was the oldest one in my Lord. class. Oh. <laughs> I can only imagine what that scenario should have been or could have been like, um, do, any big lessons from this time in your life, any key mentors, anything you learned about yourself? Um, well, I learned at the time, that I let my fears interrupt really my success because I spent the first two months. I mean, it it was bizarre world over there. I mean, it really Any was. young person in that situation. If I was one guy with five hundred and seventy three women, I would probably have been like so nervous. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. But like, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. But I think. <laughs> <laughs> you probably would have been much more excited than I was. You I would know? have not gotten any work done, i tell you that much. Hey, so. you know, everybody <laughs> said, what is the French the first French word you learned? And it was jamais, which is never, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. But um, it was crazy because I went into this world, and I and the first thing that happened is we had this big lecture, and it was in French. And I, and I thought, oh, my God, I don't speak French. Okay, obstacle number one. And, and then we went and we looked at the um, dormitories and there was a big, huge room and there it was lined with rows of cots. And I say cots, but I think it was better than cots. They had nice mattresses on them. And I said, well, where's my room? And, and they kind of like pointed in the first right-hand, third por- portion of the cots and said, well, you're down and, you know, that's your that's your cot down there. And I'm like, oh, no, this isn't going to be nice. So fear struck me on every level. But the worst, the absolute worst was we went into the latrines and, and here they were, they were just big, huge rooms with all these urinals and, and like two stalls. And I'm like, at 16, and you have to remember, I'm right in the middle of feminism and you know everything going equal rights for women in this country i mean they were marching all over the place and i get over there and now the french don't want me over there and i said okay okay i can i can handle i can handle not speaking french i can handle uh sleeping on the cot but i need my own restroom and they're like set the mage you know what a pity because this is what you get and and I, I wanted to just yell out loud, I know you see it on TV, but I really don't want equal rights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, such funny stories. Uh, so how long were you there in total? Uh, was it how, how long was the program? Well, you know, the program didn't have a time. Back then, the apprenticeship program, there's 13 levels of the kitchen. And, you know, a lot of these boys had to mature. And so they had to um, really grow into themselves and... Uh, 
you would level, you would master a level of kitchen and then you would progress to the next level. So it really could take as long as you want. I mean, you know, if you had some guys in there that I don't know really how long they could have lasted. But um, after crying the first two months, I just figured out, first of all, how to perform all bodily functions at 2 a.m. Yes, yes, I timed everything. (laughs) And then I also thought, okay, I have to quit crying like a baby. I have great stories about my mother. She was a tough old broad, too. I don't know where I get it. But um, I decided I'm going to buckle down and really just get out of here as fast as I could. I kind of I kind of thought I was almost like in a French prison that was teaching me how to cook. But uh, back then, uh, I, I like to tell kids when I'm lecturing, uh, Al Gore hadn't even invented the internet. Then. <laughs> so I would have to save up all my money and I would Western Union my mom and I'd be like, oh my God, I made a mistake. You got to get me out of here. And she'd you know send me something back. You know, you can do it, you can do it. And finally, I think I was complaining about how the French have to stand to go to the restroom. Now, most of my first part of my career was all about this bathroom. Do you realize that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very traumatic time. <laughs> yeah, it was. For, you know, I became a 16-year-old girl at that point. But um, so I Western you my mom, you know, hey, these French are crazy. They don't even, they have to stand. You even have to stand when you go to the restroom and, so I'll never forget the time my mom sent me a Western Union back, and I, and I have that in one of my cookbooks, and it says, I love you very much. Probably the only time my mom ever said that, by the way. I'm sure there were more, but to me, this was the loudest. Mm-hmm. I love you very much. Learn to stand. And I'm like, oh, no, she's not talking about the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, buckle down. You can do this. You can get through it. And it was a determined force that I said, I'm going to fast track right through that. So I got out in 27 months. Wow. Yeah, I was released from the institution in 27 months. That's pretty impressive. But, I mean, what a great lesson early in life that, you know, just you know, if you want to change your situation, put your nose down and do something about it. Right? I think I was probably mad at her for about 50 years of my life. <laughs> uh, you're a better person today because of it. So you came back to the States. Uh, what was going through your mind? Were you looking to, like, what was your thought process when you came back? Well, it's interesting how I, I came back to the States because also based on where you graduated in, in your culinary school, you were you have to apprentice for four years over there. So based on your rank in school, and I was number eleven. Pretty good out of five hundred and seventy-four. Well, a lot of them were probably still there to this day. So um, <laughs> I was accepted into uh, Pablo Cusa's restaurant in Lyon, and I'll never forget going. You know, being a woman in in the oh, man's world, much less a French man's world, is just bizarre. And so I would get, I got down to Leon and I said, hey, you know, I'm here. And he said, oh my God, you're a girl. And I said, you know, I can't change that. Back then, nobody talked about that at, that much. You know, it was just like, uh, I can't change my sex. And uh, so anyhow, he said, well, we'll try to work something out. So I ended up working with him and really learned a lot. I think that's where I learned most of my culinary skill um, and, and to this day, I don't cook that much anymore, but it's, we were just in New York this last week and my husband said, I'm just blown away by how much you know about flavor profiles and food and, and, food and technique. But um, I think I learned most of my cooking and culinary knowledge 
during that four years that I was with Bocos. What about who you are and what you learned about how to be and how to manage and how to lead? Any lessons in that regard? Well, that's a tough one. I think I think they're born leaders. And I never really thought I was a born leader because I, I didn't fit in like the corporate structure at all. So I was a born entrepreneur. And I think sometimes when we run out of leaders, I think entrepreneurs can surface and rise above to the top so that their interesting, crazy ideas become realities. And and you have to really stress that point. You have to be organized in order to get that point across. And I think really that's where leadership comes into. I mean, sometimes it, you just have to kick back and listen because I think most people have the right path going on. Um, I just had a situation where we had three people all saying opposite things, and I just kicked back. I, I do most of my great thinking on an airplane, by the way. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it's easier to think than... Plenty of time going to France. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just came back from New York the oh, other day. Right. So, But um, I just said, well, there's, there's a solution in all of this. What is it? And so if you peel back the layers, you realize, oh, well, the solution is this. I mean, it's so obvious. And I think it is to most people, but they get so bogged down into the details that they forget the leadership aspect of things. Yeah. And what is a leader, in your opinion? You said somebody like an entrepreneur that rises to the top and inspires, but like, what do you think the, the role of the leader is? I think a leader is to form the best troops possible. Mm. I don't think it has anything to do with you personally um, being the best at something, but really surrounding yourself with the best of the best and finding talent and, and keeping your team tight so that you know that as a group, you're going to be successful. And it can never be about one person. It always has to be about the entire organization. Yes. Why is that so important that it has to be about the whole organization? Oh, there we go. Uh, why does it have to be? Well, because no man, not one person can do anything. I, I think we're seeing that politically now. I mean, you know, you might have um, somebody that has all good intentions, but when you elevate somebody to a leadership role where they think that all power begins and ends with them, then you're pretty narrow-minded. I mean, nothing really begins and ends with one person. Mm -hmm. I love it. I agree with you 100%. And so bringing it back to this gentleman, this this man who was influencing you, say his name for me one more time. Paul Bacuse. Paul Bacuse. He just you. passed away a couple oh, of weeks ago. Man, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Um, who was he? Was he did, was he a big influence on you as far as you said it culinarily? Yes. Uh, what about, um, what did you learn from him on how to be? Well, Paul, you know, Paul was one of the greatest French chefs we had. You know, we've had several. Um, Auguste Escoffier was, you know, the, the forefront of people that organize the way the kitchens are. Um, and then the philosophy of Auguste Escoffier went down through the French ranks. And before, before Escoffier, and this is many, 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 many years ago, um, it was just kind of like a free-for-all in a kitchen. And they divided it into... Um, organization so that everybody had a place. Everybody knew it was a call to brigade. And so learning the French brigade and continuing that and going through Paul Bocuse, 
he ran his kitchen like an army. I mean, when, when we were over there, it was funny, uh, unlike American kitchens, you know, we had a space. It was probably five feet wide, and you were in charge of that space. You did all your prep there. You did all your uh, execution there. So during the line when, when the restaurant was operational and if you were in charge of pastries or if you were in charge of salads or grand manger, you would be in that space. And at the end, and you'd be there all day. It's not like you were, not like I am now, flipping around all the kitchen. Good thing you had all that practice holding yeah. you. Right? <laughs> and you would, at the end of the evening, you were responsible for cleaning that space. You know, the French have these little French scrub rods, and you'd scrub all the way up, all the way up to the ceiling and down. I mean, that was your space. So I think really um, learning how to territorialize that kitchen and making sure that everybody was responsible for specific things. Um, you were allowed to grow, but you were allowed to grow on your your own time, not like you couldn't watch the guy next to you or um, if you say, hey, I really want to learn to butcher. I mean, that would be on your own time. But you constantly were aware of what was going on in that kitchen um, nobody had on headphones like my kitchens nowadays, you know. Nobody had music playing in the kitchen. I mean, it was just unheard of because it was a continued learning experience for you back then. So what he taught me as a leader is um, make sure that the people surrounding you are given every opportunity to keep on learning. Um, and he was the master at that, really. He was. I just made a note because I wanted to make sure we come back or, or dive deeper into that. The what, You said it, back then it was the first job was continued learning. What happened in today's age when you take a job, they go through training, and then the learning stops? Why is this a thing? Why, why is that even happening? Like, I don't understand it. Oh, gosh. Now you'll get me and the mother and me coming out. Yeah, so, you know. bring her. I want to I wanna get her <laughs> so out So, <here>. my mother <laughs> kind of, it, it's funny, my mother, I already said she was a tough old broad. Uh, may she rest in peace, by the way. She she was born in the Cinderella Society where she was supposed to graduate from high school, get married, have kids, be a homemaker. Well, my mom really wanted, didn't want to do that. I mean, she had four children, but she really wanted to be a businesswoman. And I think she struggled her whole life uh, resenting being a mother because she wasn't really allowed to flourish. But that was the generation she was brought into. And then, you know, my grandmother just smothered all the kids. I mean, we just we just had everything. We really did. Um, even We even thought we had everything. So that's even worse. <laughs> so then when I raised my kids, you know, I... Um, and I tell this people all the time, you know, I'm working on this, this panel for a, um, a conference that I'm doing. And one of this panel topics is work-life balance. I'm, and I laugh every time I have to type it because, you know, maybe I was as bad a mother as my mother was because my world was all about me. And it was supposed to be because my mother decided that's what she wanted in life. It, she wanted it more about her than being a mother. And so my life was all about me and developing my skills and my career. And and because of that, I think my children suffered. Both of my girls suffered a little bit because, you know, I wasn't around and I wasn't the mother as much as they needed. So what I think I'm trying to say is we have a whole generation of moms that are now grandmothers 
that kind of failed a little bit. I mean, we weren't around, we started careers, and we weren't around the children as much as we could have been. But we also subsidized by giving them a lot of things uh, other than time. And so I think we've now produced a whole generation that we failed, um, and now they're producing generations. And so I think every every generation, we kind of don't get back to a family unit. And I, I really think that's what's wrong with our society, because we're all such individuals now that we forget the core of, of really society or families. Tribal, like closed, closed yeah, groups. Yeah, and so we've produced all these individualists that, you know, I was talking to a chef today on the phone. He said, you know, he had gone through the the program and he was recovering alcoholic. And he said, but I kept on living my life like a dry drunk. And I'm like, what the heck is a dry drunk? You know, like, I don't, this isn't part of my world. And he said, where I live the lifestyle of being an alcoholic and yet I don't drink. And he said, so he started going through this program and so I said, you know, you're not alone. I mean, the restaurant world is filled with a lot of creative, manic minds. And so they're kind of out of control. But I see the generations that are coming in now where they're not satisfied with the basic skills of learning, that they're constantly wanting to be challenged more. They constantly want, you know, a work-life balance, which in the restaurant world and the hospitality industry is kind of like... I can't wait to go to my panel because I got to figure that part out after oh, 45 There's years. There's so many things I want to <laughs> dive into right now. But to finish your train of thought, I don't want to cut you short. But I, I really think that, you know, I kind of applaud this newest generation of workforce because they want to try a lot of everything, but there's no loyalty. And um, I think that they sell themselves short by not spending as much time at a location as possible and learning as much as they can from mentors or people that have been in this industry for a long time. See that last line for me one more time. I'll make sure I, I got it right. Um, I think they, they probably are not give, doing themselves justice by not spending that much time, as much time as possible, learning everything they can from their mentors. Yeah. So I, I'm loving what you're dropping on us right now. Uh, you went back. Well, I think there's a. This isn't about my opinions. It's about your opinions. But to kind of bounce off what you're saying, uh, there's a lot going on where we send people to to school, right? And we kind of just expect them to come out of school and like do the job, and we have no obligation to bring them to the next level. Whereas school is really only like a 200 year old, 150 year old idea. Uh, ed formal education, whereas before you kind of just found an, you were an apprentice, you found somebody who did what they did and, and that person mentored the next generation and groomed the next generation and cared for the next generation. And now it's all transactional. Uh, it's like you pay me and I give you a piece of paper. You don't have to do, be good at it. Like as long as you show up to class and get at least a, a C or whatever, like we'll push you along. Um, and there's really no, uh, there's, it, it doesn't go very deep as it used to, where it was so close-knit, it was so one-on-one, -on -one, it was so grooming and caring. And I think that, it, that has transferred into the workplace where a lot of empl employers are just like, all right, like you're getting paid, you're getting your paycheck, you went to school, you should be able to do this. That's not my job to teach you. Am I speaking out of line or do you? Well, I think, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you on that because I think that, we're in a weird state right now where the employers aren't loyal and some of the employees aren't loyal. And that and that's a sad place to be. 
um, you know, I tell people when they come on board here, you know, stay as long as you want to stay, but just know that you'll not retire from my my business because if you're not out there wanting after several years to go out and learn more from someone else, then you're really probably not going to succeed in our world. Mm. And so I'm always encouraging people. I'm always encouraging people to come in, work with me a little bit, you know, start a business just like mine because I'm not going to be working this one forever and um, really learn the most you can from people. You know, I get somewhat sad about the new generations coming in and and how different they are from our generation. And at the same time, there's some kind of weirdo thing in me that get all excited that, you know, they're conquering the world at a rate that we never knew how how or why it existed. You know, we, we didn't know you know, that you can go in and, and work for 20 chefs and and not be loyal, but you could just pick up all this information for everybody. So who am I to judge them? Well, I, I mean, think we need to set new uh, standards as far as uh, what is normal, uh, because it isn't necessarily fair for you to take somebody underneath your wing, you mentor them, you give them knowledge, and then six months later, they're gone. Maybe it should be at least a year. Maybe there should be an industry standard that if you don't give at least a year, I'm going to look at that and heavily weigh that into my opinion for hiring. You know, it's funny. My generation was all about accumulating as much uh, items and things and possessions and money as you possibly could. And then you die and you give them to somebody else. I mean, it's a weird situation. Um. I often said for years, there's two ways to get rich. First of all, somebody leaving you money or working your butt off. Uh, now, you know, I can't even say that because I have guys in my kitchen Then I've got one that's leaving and he begged to come work here. He's worked here four months and he said, came up to me the other day and he said, um, don't you love this? This is my uh, energy saving life. <laughs> We are We're now sitting in, the, sitting right in now, the dark. And the lights just went off. Yeah. We're sitting in the dark. You have I'll, to wave your arms or I'll something. I'll roll with it. If you, <laughs> I, can, I can focus on your words better now. Um, this is perfect. Do you want to put a pause in here and we can fix it? Or are you no, cool we don't need to fix it. We no, can keep on I'm, talking. I'm cool. Pick up your train of thought. Go for it. So, you know, so I have this guy in my kitchen. He's been here four months and he begged to come on board. And he came up to me the other day. He goes, chef, I'm leaving. And I wanted to, you know, the old chef and me wanted to pop him upside the head. But now I said, that's exciting. I said, <laughs> where are you going? And he said, we're going to pack up all of our stuff and we're moving to Alaska. And, you know, I so much wanted to be the nurturing, supportive chef and said, yes. But I said, oh, my God, you idiot. Do you know how cold it is right now? <laughs> wait until the summer at least. I said, it's so cold in Alaska. Why, yeah, why don't you wait till June? But, you know, that's what you're dealing with now. You know, you got people that just say, hey, life is short. And it really is. Yeah. You know, I think I, I agree with you there. People are more about collecting experiences now and keeping their liabilities as low as possible mm-hmm. so they can so they can explore and they can experience more. And their values are definitely shifting. Uh, you kind of dance around the topic of work-life balance and you kind of. Uh, suggested that you don't necessarily believe in work-life balance, or I don't oh, know, I but, want to believe in work-life yeah. balance. <laughs> so, I really do. Yeah. Well, let's go into that. What, what are your thoughts on work-life balance, and why is this going to be a difficult chat for you? Um. Well, because I'm a failure at that. If there's one thing I'm a failure at, it's work-life balance. You know, I think a lot of us um, 
get involved with our jobs and it becomes our personality and it becomes um, really what we're all about. And, and I don't think that's been fair to a lot of people in my life. Fortunately, I married a man who does not have a work-life balance. Um, he works in the a wine and liquor industry. So, you know, it's not a bad house to come visit. <laughs> no, so, um, but I, I look at these guys, you know, I, I look at people in my industry now and that say, hey, you know, um, I really would like to be home by from three to five because my kids come home from school and I want to be there and I want to get dinner started. I'll work the day shift and I'll come back and work night shift. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But in all reality, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of that. Well, you know, I think the whole concept of work-life balance is uh, another unique uh, topic or a situation of our time where what is work and what is life? I mean, I think before people just had like their purpose, like their their meaning in their community or whatever, whatever purpose they serve. And that was their life. It wasn't this work-life balance. It was just... It was just your, work. <laughs> it was your or your life's work, you know? And this yeah. is why I hear this is my purpose. This is my definite purpose in life to do this thing, to contribute to society. And this is why I'm here. And I think the problem is we don't really have that definite purpose. We have a job. And then that, you need that divide because it's not your purpose. It's the, the thing you need to do to survive. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I agree. Totally agree. It's hard because I, I can't see your face right now. I know. So that's I can't right. tell if you're, if you're pouting or smiling. <laughs> this this will be the start of your interview in the dark. Right, yeah. I think Hugh Hefner did it years ago. Playboy After Dark, wasn't oh, it? <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. Before my time, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Once again, a generational gap. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so... Typically, the the format of the show is I go very chronological, but with people that have been in the oh, we've already blown that yeah, with forty years of experience, it's it, you you'll never hit it all. You'll never cover the entire career in an hour's time. So, you bring us to the next point in your career where you think you most transformed. So I came back from France and um, realized I'd never make a lot of money as a cook. And actually, I'm, that's the teaser. I'm going to tap the brakes right there because I just realized we're already 30 minutes into this conversation <laughs> and we need to take a break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grand Junction Subs in the Craft Cave to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen displays, screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and pick up your train of thought. You just came back from France. And I said I'd, I realized I'd never make as m enough money being a cook. So um, by chance, you know, um, I do something in my life, I get some accolades for it, and I think that I've mastered this. I wrote for the high school newspaper. <laughs> so I thought, okay, 
I love the way you approach life. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, if somebody tells you you're a good cook, I'm going to France. Yeah. Somebody tells you you're good at writing, I'm going to go take over the New York Times. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> have taken over the Times. But, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. But anyhow, um, so I went out to um, Colorado because the University of Colorado at that time was thinking about doing a culinary program. And they were nice to me. I clepped out of a lot of school, but um, they started a restaurant and hospitality degree and I achieved that by helping them set up this program but I also decided well what the heck I've got some extra time so I'm going to get a dual degree in journalism and and that was fun I, I don't know why I did that well yeah I know why because you know I had some accolades in high school <laughs> high school you're a pretty good writer okay so. yes I am so um I don't know what happened about when I was at the Ritz-Carlton and I'd gone from there to the French ranks. I went all the way up the French ranks. Um, I had met a gentleman in Lyon by the name of uh, Jean Bonchet, who was probably the most famous French chef we had in the country at the time. And when I was over in Europe, he um, told me that I needed to come cook in his kitchens in Chicago. So I started up, I went to work for Jean Bonchet at a restaurant called Le Francais and worked my way through his ranks. And then his best friend was a gentleman by uh, Fernand Gutierrez, who was at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago. So then I started with the Ritz-Carlton. But in the meantime, I just said, I'm working this uh, career through culinary, which is what I should have been doing. But I also met through the Ritz-Carlton, a gentleman by the name of David Soskin. And David Soskin at the time, who was a good client of both Le Francais and the Ritz-Carlton, we became good friends. And, and it's funny growing up in a French kitchen because um, all the French guys are horrible when they're getting interviewed. So um, immediately I figured out that I was the tiny little blonde-headed one that they would dress up in a nice outfit and I would get to be the spokesperson for any kind of interview whatsoever. So I became the face of French cuisine in Chicago, which is bizarre. Um, but David Soskin and I became good friends and when he at the time was with Soskin and Haskins, which turned into Deloitte and Haskins. And when David sold his company, he was, uh, he's a marketing guru when he decided to go into an early um, startup company by Scripps Networks, which was called Food Network. And so he went to Food Network, and when he got into Food Network, his job, and back then Food Network, and that's who I currently work for, um, Food Network back then was very PBS-like. So it was all about education. It was quite boring. I mean, because nobody did education better than PBS. And so when David came on board as a, a marketing guru, he said, you know, seriously, you have to choose. You have to choose between education or entertainment. And by the way, there's people better than you at education. And Scripps, they were an educational production company anyhow. Um, Scripps, by the way, did all of our sex videos in, in high school. So that was the claim to fame before Food Network. I know. Is that, that's kind of that's kind of strange. But anyhow, um, so David took on Food Network and really made it entertainment. I like to say to him, that's the day that Chef started beating me up for being involved with the company because he assembled a group of culinary experts and they were just buddies of his that were chefs. And so we all got together and really served as a consulting team for what's 
kind of exciting going on in our our country with food and the chefs that needed to be on the network and so I served as a consultant for David for a long time and all of a sudden he looked at me and he said you realize your culinary and your journalism career have collided and I said I never ever planned that by the way I never thought those two would collide exactly what I thought when I heard you say that you did journalism I was like oh she has a whole media broadcast journalism at that yeah I was like, I'm really going to love talking to this woman. Uh, so is there a lesson to draw from this? Or any- Oh, well, I, you know, I wish there was uh, just something that I could blurt out that would be, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't I, know if there's a lesson. Maybe never, never really look at as anything as being limiting, I yeah. think. You know, one thing that's kind of been a reoccurring theme for me that has kind of come up a couple of times under the radar is the something that I see a lot in successful people is that they had somebody to point out what they were good at. And I think that's something that we don't do well enough in society. If somebody you know, a young person you know, or even an older person you know, is good at something, let them know. Because for us, it's relative. We don't recognize, we don't often see what we're good at because we're just doing the thing. But from different perspectives, when you see somebody that has a talent for something, encourage it, draw it out of them. Because we need help finding our lane. We need help finding our purpose when we're young. And it sounds like that you really listen to the people that would say things to you when you were good at something and they sent you down this path. So be an influence in someone's life if they're good at it. I think that's true. I think we we tend to be, as a society, a little bit negative. I think we concentrate on people's faults and not their their assets. And I really think that if we were more encouraging and more supportive, you know, I, I love the, the Me Too movement and everything, but I have to tell you, there's nothing more... Uh, really actually scary than a group of women because, you know, a group of women tear themselves apart and they have such a power tool to be supportive of each other. You know, the reason why that we haven't progressed at the rate that we could have as females in entrepreneurship and leaders is because we've lacked support of each other. Mm. Yeah. So, but that's just the women's side of things. Yeah. I think the our society in general, we're we're too I negative. Think, I think you could you could take that statement that we're not supportive of each other and apply it to all walks. Of oh, life. I I do. Yeah. I think yeah. I think the answer really is um, what I do every morning. I have my Zen like music that I I drive down the tollway on because if not, you want to ram other cars. So I think Zen <laughs> music probably is the answer to everything. Right. Um. So I mean. Chef Van Meter, you've worked for some really incredible people. We kind of glossed over uh, the Ritz Carlton. Uh, we didn't even talk about your influences with um, oh, the designer, the clothes. I'm not a clothes person. Neiman Marcus. Uh, was that. I actually had a question about that. Was that a corporate gig? Is that what that it was? It was a corporate gig. Okay. I, I was I failed at that. I was not good at corporate. Well, what, what happened first? Uh, the Ritz um, Carlton or. No, Ritz Carlton was first. And then. Uh, I was with Food Network after I left the Ritz Carlton. Is it, is it worth touching on any any experiences from the Ritz? Any uh, organizational lessons you learned from such a really well? Great my God, are you? You know what? Everybody could learn from the Ritz, and it's changed quite a bit in all these years. But you know, they they're all about servicing people, mm. and I think if we approach life as service entities instead of people that are being served, I. You know, their mon- motto of uh, 
ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen is incredible. Yeah. I mean, we live that. I have Horst uh, Schultz. He was on the show uh, a couple of weeks back mm-hmm. uh, promoting his new book. And I'm actually stopping in Atlanta Are you really? on my way back to New Hampshire to do another episode. We're going to do the 26 standards of service. Uh, do you know those? Was he going through those? When oh, you were my there? God. Yeah. You lived them. You lived that. Why was that so important to live this the steps of service? Well, because if you are going to be a brand that, I mean, back the hotel band uh, brands back then were... Um, Going from high end because only the only the high end hotels were really flourishing back then, but then they realized that there was a shift and that they had to come up with all of these um, affordable hotel units and entities. Um, so when that happened, it all shifted. So people were staying at the Holiday Inns and stuff like that, and and the high end started suffering. And so the Ritz-Carlton looked at all of it and said, we will never waver. We will always be ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And, and it, the entire way, was our lifestyle there. You know, yeah. if a customer wanted anything, it was made available within reason. I mean, you know, I didn't think we had trapeze artists or anything like that that were swinging. But uh, it was crazy. I mean, you went to every avenue possible to get something yeah. accomplished. And you said that, that it was the, it was, I can't remember the exact words you use. Uh, it was the way of life, but like literally every shift mm-hmm. you would go over, a, you would reinforce a, one of the 26 steps of service. Yes. And, and you have to like really hammer these things. I mean, it's that consistency, that reminder of like, this is who we are. This is why we exist. You have to operate at that level to be extremely well at something, at that constant reminder. Uh, any other like lessons from this incredible group? I don't want to hover too much time here. but Well, there, there were so many. I mean, really, the quality of food that we had, the quality of employee, it was just a magical time for us, you know. And then I was even there for the transition. I was part of the opening team, so we would go to all the openings and, and prep the new restaurants and the new hotels for um, culinary service. But um, it was funny because just because you were part of the culinary team, I mean, if housekeeping all of a sudden was failing, your culinary parts of your culinary team would go support other entities in the hotel. So it wasn't just that, you know, I was corporate executive chef. It was that during an opening, if something bizarre was happening, all the leadership team had to focus on our weaknesses. And um, it, it just made us so much stronger. I was also there during the transition. And when we started peeling off and selling to Marriott, and we became just a management company. So that was an interesting transition as well. You mentioned a failure you had at uh, Neiman Marcus. Uh, is it worth going into that? Oh, well, sure. Well, you know, after, so, you know, we're skipping decades, but that's okay. I'm good with that. <laughs> the older you get, the more decades you skip. Um, so when I came down, my husband transferred to Dallas, and um, I wasn't going to work down here. I was going to just commute back and forth. Um, I became uh, a corporate chef for Neiman Marcus, and I really kind of thought Ritz-Carlton, Neiman Marcus, they were going to be the same. Um, But at the Ritz-Carlton, I was allowed to flourish and be part of that creative team. And Neiman Marcus was the same level of service. Uh, Stanley was still around back then. (laughs) Oh, I I could do a whole podcast on my life with Stanley. (laughs) But... um, 
it was interesting because of the transitions they were having, the corporate controls were a little stifling. And so when it came to corporate HR, and not HR as much as corporate food service and everything like that, you know, I was doing things one way, they were doing things another way. And so, you know, I think that's part of being a good leader too. And part of success is knowing you can't, you have to give everything you can, but you also have to realize when it's not going to be best for either parties for you to still be there. And towards the end of Stanley Marcus's life, I became his private chef for the last six months of his life. And I was sitting in his memorial service and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm out of here. I mean, this man right here, and it was so cool. Bobby Short was singing. I mean, we were at the Meyerson. Life was wonderful. I always said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die like Stanley. We're going to have, <laughs> we're going to have celebrity. I can't have Bobby Short anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, what a great celebration of life that was. So you you keep on bringing up Stanley's name, Stanley Marcus, right? Oh, loved him. What you had a lot of admiration for this man. What was it about him that? you admired how has he influenced who you are today well i think the theme uh of everybody important in my life is really about how to make other people feel their absolute best i think that was the the thing i experienced with yves saint laurent as a dress designer i think i experienced that in his quality of clothing and his quality of service to his customers the same way with paul bucuse you know bucuse his restaurants were the best in france and his service was incredible, the Ritz-Carlton the same way. And I think Stanley really, um, I think he really was service. I think if there was one word to describe him, that would have been it. Because he didn't even work for the company when I came on board. And I'll never forget um, coming into, I was at um, the Prestonwood location, we were closing down that Neiman Marcus. and. I was hired as a consultant to come in and and straighten some things out there because they were closing that store. And Stanley came in one day, and I'll never forget the air of excitement that you felt things had changed in that whole facility. And I didn't know what it was, but it was a magical feeling. And all of a sudden, in the, the restaurant door walked Stanley Marcus with his cane, and his, he had a, a, a driver back then, a chauffeur, and he walked up to me, didn't introduce him. He didn't introduce himself. He just said, do you have time to have some tea with me? And now, now I know who this guy is. <laughs> I've never met him before, but I'm like, oh, yes, I have time. But there was just this air of excitement when he was in that building. And I think it was all about his passion for Neiman Marcus, how excited he was, and how much he truly loved that company and still wanted to be part of it even way after he had sold the company and he was out of it. I mean, you know, but he was still Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus. So, so you, you said that you learned from him how, how to make people feel their best. Can you get granular as far as what he would do to make people feel their best? Something specific, a nugget that you picked up from him? Well, you know, Stanley was so funny. He used to call me Little Helen. And, and this is a story that I'll always stay with me. So Helen Corbett, who was the um, culinary guru of Neiman Marcus, you know, Stanley had hired Helen Corbett to come in and she was a fiery redhead and, and wasn't fond of women, but just loved men. And she ran the kitchens of Neiman Marcus. And 
he used to say to her, she, uh, he always just said to me, I had the chutzpah of Helen Corbett, and, and I thought it was a compliment, and little did I realize that they butted heads constantly, because Stanley would come in, and he would tell her one thing, this was back when we, he was in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, when he was running the company, and she was running the kitchens, and he would say, you can't do this, or you can do this, and she would totally defy him, and then he'd end up firing her, telling her to go and he said the next day she'd be in there and he said i told you to leave and she said and i told you i'm not leaving (laughs) so he said i don't know i don't know if it was an exaggeration on his part he goes i know i i fired her at least six times and she never left (laughs) so how did he make her feel special in that moment or what was the well you know it was kind of that philosophy like you know you're not following what i needed that and I guess at the very end of it, it was all about, he realized she was all about what he needed. And so how he made her feel like she was in charge and and never even realized it. But Stanley was incredible with just all employees because you kind of felt like you and Stanley were the best of friends. Mm. And it's his customers felt that the same for way. People, right? When you care for people, they'll care for you. And it sounds like he just cared. He did care. He cared. Um, sometimes I would see him down on the floor and, you know, it was amazing to watch him walk up to somebody that was buying a cashmere sweater. And he would say, and he'd hold this cashmere sweater up. Now, the guy didn't work there anymore. I mean, it was still his name. But he would say, let me show you the color that would be perfect for you. And then he would hold this sweater up. And he would start talking about the quality of the cashmere and, you know, what this would mean and that this was an investment, but but this was a piece that they'd have forever. And by the end of it, you know, he sold this lady three sweaters. And I looked at him and I'm like, it's all about telling this customer exactly what they need to hear and exactly how that product would benefit them. And he truly cared. I mean, also truly believing that what you have will do those things too, right? Yeah. And uh, he, he he was somebody who was passionate about his trade. He was passionate about his work, was he not? He was totally so it passionate. So transfers a community. You know, that translates. Um, people can pick up on the sincerity. And when you're doing it for them and their interest, I mean, how else? I mean, how, how, is there a better way to make friends, right? No. So, um, I, Sharon, I apologize. I can't believe how fast time is going. We're already at 51 minutes. No I'm, way. Yeah, I'm getting lost in your stories. We're, we're only there. We're only to 1990-something. I know. <laughs> that's why I want to apologize. We haven't even talked about any of your businesses yet. Um, should, we fa- can we, should we just fast forward? Yeah, go to, for it. Yeah. So um, when did you know it was time to break off on your own and do your own thing? Well, I've always done my own thing, by the way. You know, this, uh, I got involved in Dallas uh, in 3015 because I went to do a consulting project. Um, A group of people at Milestone Culinary Arts Center wanted to do a big grand opening and they needed a Food Network celebrity and they ended up not getting one, but because they hired me that night, they could use the name. And so they did this big grand opening and really learned to love that family. It was the Woodall family. They also owned Ventahood. So they had this showroom and I said, hey, let's really, let me take this over and let me do some corporate team building here. And we recreated our TV show Chopped. Um, we call it the stainless steel chef competition because, you know, Food Network has a lot of attorneys. So were that. you behind the original group that created Chopped? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And wow. and the other one that I created was the next Food Network TV star. 
Interesting. That's well, another good one. Bizarro. That's a great story, but <laughs> <laughs> that's our second podcast. So anyhow, I ended up um, running their showroom and doing the stainless steel chef competition, which is team building. People not only looked at their high-end Viking stoves, but they actually experienced them by cooking on them. So that was very uh, productive for them and for us. And when um, six years later, when Phil Romano and the guys were building West Dallas, they begged me to come over and see it. And, you know, every now and then you have people in your life that you just say, okay, sure, just to so they don't call anymore. Well, I came over here, and for some reason, I kind of saw the whole vision. And, I, and I've and i always loved being a Chicago, and I've always loved being part of an urban environment. So I moved out of Highland Park and into West Dallas, and everybody just thought I had lost my mind. But really, I, I love this area, and I love what we're doing at 3015. Um, it works so well without me, by the way. I spend probably two weeks out of the month here. And the rest of the time I'm on the road, but um, this is my home office right now. It's a little crowded, as you can see. But I, um, I think at 3015, it's kind of a culinary home for a lot of chefs. Um, we do team building here, but it's also we do a lot of fundraising. Yeah, I was curious about the team building. Um, is it is it team building? Are you teaching team building? For the way I interpreted it is corporations will come in and you will use the kitchen environment to to enforce or reinforce team building or, or but are other chefs coming here to learn team building it was a little confusing no it's mostly corporate america because okay. they they want to pay the big dollars for it to be honest with you make it fun and interesting yeah it time. is well we do a chopped experience for them yeah. and you know thank god that tv show has been pretty popular because now i can sell it uh <laughs> but um it's also been the home of nonprofits because we don't carry a liquor license here, so we open up the facility for them to use their fundraising for fundraising. We also have chefs. I mean, every chef across the um, parking lot, when they were building their restaurants, they were allowed to come in and, you know, just gratis use the kitchen, uh, become part of the community. We welcome chefs to come in and use it, um, unless we don't like them. No. I, love, see, I love this, though, because... Part of the mission here at Restaurant Unstoppable isn't just to give like the hard knowledge, the skills, and like little detailed things you're going to need to be better. But it's also it's more about how to be and how to treat other people. And you came into the space. There's there's restaurants all around you. You're surrounded by them. And you could have said no, like don't waste our time. Like we don't have time for you. But instead, you're opening your doors to the people in your community to support them and to do whatever you can to make sure that they're successful. How has that served you? Well. First of all, we were first here, and so it served served me well because I'm kind of the philosophy that if you're going to get involved, don't don't just get a little involved, get a lot involved. So I'm kind of a 200 percenter. If I'm part of your organization, if I'm on your board of directors, if I'm part of this community, this community was a pretty depressed, um, multi-generational, low-income a group of people that are incredibly rich. I mean, their heritage is beyond anything I've ever experienced. And immediately I recognized it and realized that if I was going to plop my business down in the middle of this community, I needed to be part of it. So this has also become the community center for all the holiday parties. And so the the community comes in um, and, and hosts their events here. So it really was a place that you have to be you have to be part of a larger uh, entity other than just you and your business, I think. And yeah. so that's what 3015 is. Yeah, and you know, 
I don't often get a lot of event space uh, entrepreneurs on the show. It's a really interesting, unique vertical. Uh, so, really, um, what what were the the benefits of this business model, the event space business model? And I think it's an underserved market. I mean. I don't want to make more competition for you, but what I'm saying, like, what were the benefits of why did you get into this vertical? Well, because I think it was a little gift, and I think that's that's one of the things as an entrepreneur I've learned to recognize the little gifts that people give you. And so here was this family that needed somebody in Highland Park, needed somebody to experience their product differently than just having a salesperson. And I came up with this creative idea of doing team building. And I said, and we're not only doing team building, we're going to charge a lot of money to do this so that, you know, these people that are paying this kind of money can also afford your product. So the, the team building was the leading edge. That's what, that, that's it what was. the catalyst. Yeah, that's what came first. And okay. then when Phil Romano and Stuart Phipps and Butch McGregor, who developed this whole project over here, they needed a, an anchor store, I call myself. And so we came on board first. And, and I, I make fun of Phil. I said, I need about 2,500 square feet. You know, I'm getting older. I want to kind of start reducing projects. So he built this 10,000 square foot building. <laughs> well, he didn't build it. We remodeled it. And I said, no, this isn't 2,500 square feet. So it became really the the center okay. for everything that was hop, the breaking up and hopping around here. What are the pros to an event space? Uh, as far I mean, I'm assuming you probably get a little more work-life balance. Or you're kind of joking <laughs> Well, but. you know, at, this is my 45th year in the culinary world, and I have started creating my own work-life balance because um, I've been blessed with grandchildren who really, and, and this is just my philosophy, are the reason why children are born is to give you some grandchildren because they are much more Don't fun. Don't say that to my mom. <laughs> she's already mad at me. I'm, she's gonna oh, give me her whip. telephone number. <laughs> <laughs> I have seven grandchildren. Oh, wow. And and really, I it's funny because, you know, you're so rough on your kids and you just want them to uh, to excel in things. And you spend a lot of your time being more critical or more um, controlling than loving, I think. Or that maybe not everybody, but this is just me. And when those grandkids are born, you know, you don't have the responsibility of raising them, but you have all the responsibility in the world for loving them. And so mm. them coming into my life is just kind of like, okay, now I'm a kinder, gentler person. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm not. A, you know. So, I mean, you got so many things going on too. We, we haven't really even dived into taco, uh, e vino, uh, how how are you approaching your business ventures today versus back in the day? Like what you are a seasoned vet of this industry. What are you thinking when you're going into these business opportunities? Any advice for business? Well, you know, I'm also an investor, so I, I go into business opportunities simply to make money. Mm -hmm. um, but besides that, I think making money, I think you have to be supportive. Taco Vino was a project that was developed by a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Contreras, who is um, – uh, a pretty decent wine guy in this business, and he wanted to do this taco and wine bar, and he needed an investor. So he came to me, and I said, well, first of all, you know, I don't have a taco without either a margarita or a beer, so why are you thinking wine's going to work? And the more I looked into his uh, business plan and then um, said, these tacos then, culinary-wise, have to be deconstructed and have to 
you have to really pair wine with protein forward on tacos. And so I deconstructed all these things and we started tasting and then we taste and we'd add a little bit more and a little bit more to the point where the wine and the taco paired well together. So for me, um, investing and he needed money. So investing in a future restaurant tour is exciting. And I've done that about 15 times now, invested in different restaurants. Um, well, well, I know what I was, I was going to ask you, um, uh, it's something I don't always get to talk to investors. I usually pe- talk to people who are, you know, are successful in their business and they're creating other businesses, but they haven't removed themselves to the point where they're seeing talent and they're able to invest in you. De- you've developed an eye because you've been surrounded by this industry for so long. What are you looking for when you see somebody who has something? When do you know it's a good investment? I think, you know, it's a good investment when you find a creative idea and you don't look at the potential of uh, income generation, but you look at really in our industry, is that unique? Is it, you know, if you're an investor, you're always looking at something more multi-unit than individuals, even though I love to take an independent restaurant and say, okay, what if we did another one of these what implication would it have on the original and how how can we incorporate it into multi-generational uh multi-generational listen to me multi-units but i think the taco vino property um is an incredible concept it's it's affordable it's reasonably priced and i can just look at that and see that as being something that we just put in a lot of major uh university towns Mm. yeah you know just thinking about it, like you said something unique and there's definitely a unique selling proposition there because like you said, whenever you see a taco on a menu, it's usually with a beer or with a margarita. But what about all those people that love wine and why not right. pair tacos and wine? You can get so creative there and that's definitely a unique selling proposition in a state like Texas where you got hundreds of taco places in every city, right? Like what can you do to, to make it different, right? Um, anything else you're looking for? Oh, I'm going Saturday to Hawaii, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to just sitting there in my new little house. And, you know, you I can it. see the ocean and the whales right now. The whales are there. So um, I don't know. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I go to there to kind of decompress. But um, in this area, it's uh, predominantly same-sex male couples. And so I become quite popular. They always invite me to come cook at their house, like that's an honor or something. <laughs> but I love these guys, and um, and I'm winning the popularity contest there, and so I go over there to decompress, but I cook almost more there than I do in this area oh, or man. in the United States uh, mainland, so it's funny. Well, I want to respect your time, so we're going to wrap up the, the free portion, the free-flowing portion of the show. Uh, but anything, I don't want to cut you short. Was there anything you were hoping we would talk about, anything you can bring to the surface before going to the, the speed round? No, I, I like what you're doing, by the way. Thank you. I really do. I, I think that we don't tell enough history in this country. We learn from the history, you know? I we think we do. We learn from our mistakes, and uh, thank you for seeing the value in that. Um, I just want to, one more question, because it's it's a habit that I'm trying to create. Uh, The mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So let me ask you, how have you transformed over this 40-year career? Who are you today as a professional versus who you were then? You know, I think down deep, I'm always a cook. Even when I'm not cooking, I I feel like uh, I have a hard time giving up the title chef, which is weird, you know. but I think in the transformation has been from um, 
a young entrepreneur that didn't know she was one into a definite entrepreneur that kind of paths the way for a lot of people coming into our world now. And thank you for what you've done. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant's hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I'm fearless. What is your biggest weakness? I'm fearless. <laughs> I love it when that happens. <laughs> the, the, weak, the, the weakness is also the strength. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team? Mm, I would say loyalty. Mm. What is a current challenge today? Oh, not enough time in the day, I don't think. How are you dealing with that challenge? Is it because of people like me taking up all of your time during interviews? No. <laughs> I record mindless TV and watch uh. it. <laughs> uh <laughs> Share one code of conduct or behavior that you teach your team, a core value, a way to be. Always put the customer first. Mm. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your business is not common within the industry. You know, uh, my whole team, I say to them over and over and again, treat this business like it's yours and it will be one day. Yes. I love it. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I know. That's hard. That's a hard question. Give me two. <laughs> wow. It is a hard question. I don't know. You know, I really think I think maybe the seven minute manager that is a good one. would be something. Um I don't know. I think really more business books and more self-help books, more, um, no, anything about improving yourself as a manager. It's not every day I get to see the I know, the like this is scary, isn't it? Right next to my guest. You got I some, would say that Fogwa book's really good. <laughs> you, got some, you got a great library up here. Um, I'll put the, the, is it the seven minute or the 10 minute manager? I can't remember. I don't know. He, the something I, minute manager. I probably didn't read all the minutes, but I know that's a great book. <laughs> uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? I don't think they're consistent enough. In what way? 
Well, you go into a restaurant and the consistency of, like, for example, a Houston's or a Hillstone's is incredible because of the training process that they have. So I would say training based on consistency. You can go in there and get your veggie burger, which is, by the way, one of the best in town. Um, you can go in there and get that same veggie burger over and over and over, and I have for 17 years. The other day I had to correct him. I'm like, somebody needs to look at the recipe. It's not the same. <laughs> really? I'm going to have to yeah. go check it out. Uh, okay. What's one piece of technology you've adopted within your businesses that has had a huge influence on in operations that you can share with us? Oh, uh, I would say my my iPhone because <laughs> <laughs> that's my office now. And right. my staff gets a hold of me every which way on that, you know, and sends me little teeny messages that so I have like to That's like an intercom. I've seen it use is. it like an intercom. My intercom. <laughs> I love it. Hey, that's better than me yelling because usually I'm like, hey, somebody get me this. I love it. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Maybe aliens coming to abduct you or something, but you can only leave a few memories behind or thoughts behind, things you know to be true uh, to, for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What were the things you'd leave behind uh, that you know to be true for the rest of humanity? Three I, things. Three things? Yeah. I think they're all just one thing. I think we need to be better. I think we need to be better people. I think we need to be kinder people. And um, I think we need to be more loving people. Be better, be kinder, be loving. I love the direction that's going. Awesome stuff today, Sharon. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. I'll wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one person that you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh, alive. I have to think of somebody alive. <laughs> you know, I would say probably Grant. Well, does it have to be a Texan? No. Oh, I love Grant Aches from mm, Alinea. Yeah. Um, I've followed his career for a while, and and we're friends, and I just love everything he's about. I've had his business partner on the show. I'd Have love you it. really? Yeah, Nick Akonis was amazing. Uh, I would love to get Grant's hard. Grant. Yeah, Grant's hard to interview. You know, he's he's a little weird about the way he presents himself and okay, his thought pattern. Too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I've only seen people interview him. Chef Sharon Van Meter, again, thank you so much. Uh, how can the folks uh, connect with you if they want to maybe come join your team or, uh, I don't know, uh, follow you on social media or whatever? Yeah, that's a Heather question once again. <laughs> but I do know that we're at 3015dallas.com. 3015dallas.com. I'll have that in the show notes as well as a link to any books, tools, or resources that are recommended to summary of today's discussion. Uh, Sharon Van Meter, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no uh, problem. I really enjoyed this. It was my pleasure. There is no questioning. You are <laughs> unstoppable. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C. C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.